God, as we enter into this Advent season, I thank you that we can sing all these songs of blessing and all these songs of remembrance of why your son came. Uh, He came for a lot of reasons, but uh, the primary reason for which he came was to save sinners, was to make a, uh, a sacrifice of his own self in order to bring lost people to him. And I pray this morning as we open your word and we hear the beginning of this message from John the Baptist, which is carried on through Jesus and even now through us today, proclaiming this message of repentance, I pray that you would stir our hearts to obedience and toward a gratitude for what you've done for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 3. As I read our text this morning, we're going to cover the first six verses of Luke chapter 3. So follow along. You can follow in your Bible. You can follow on the screen as I read the story of the coming of John the Baptist. Here's what Luke records for us. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Aturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That is what Luke records for us this morning. One of the things that I love about Scripture is that the Scripture writers include for us historical details that not only ground the Bible in real time and space, but they also give us a lot of insight into the cultural context that's happening around the story. I think one of the mistakes that we can make when we read Scripture is just to read through passages like this and skip over the details. There's a lot of names there we don't know. And just go straight to the main character, in this case, John the Baptist, And focus on him. Well, let me assure you that if we do that with Luke chapter 3, we will miss the in-your-face kind of message that John the Baptist is proclaiming in this particular region. And so that's one of the reasons why I like how Luke opens this chapter 3. Not only is Luke giving us a timeline, which, by the way, it, it confirms the the authenticity, the reality of Scripture, because you can follow the timeline with worldly sources. Not only does he give us that, 
But included in all of this detail that he gives us is what's happening around the main character of John the Baptist so that when we hear the message of John the Baptist, it's going to set us back on our our heels a little bit. Because what's going on around John the Baptist is nothing short of a chorus of corruption that's happening politically, culturally, and religiously around the nation of Israel at that time. And all of it is captured in the first two verses of Luke chapter 3 that gives us the context of what's happening here. So Luke starts off in verse 1, and he says, this is the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, Tiberius Caesar was a, a ruler in Rome from about A.D. 14 until A.D. 37. Okay, so um, this is uh, toward the kind of the middle of his reign here. Um, he, Tiberius excelled as a military commander. He was a, an, an awesome Roman administrator. But Tiberius ran into problems with the Roman Senate, and eventually it led him to abandon Rome, and he, he ended his career actually on the island of Capri from A.D. 26 until he died uh, in A.D. 37. Jesus never had to face Tiberius Caesar, um, but he did have to face the next character of corruption that shows up here in Luke chapter uh, three, he had to face Pontius Pilate. Now, there's, an, there's a fascinating background uh, behind Pontius Pilate that I think is helpful uh, for us to know. How many of you remember from your high school history class a guy named Herod the Great? You at least remember the name. You might not remember a lot about Herod the Great, uh, but Herod was the great Roman conqueror. He was the one that really established the, the empire of Rome. And because of him, uh, there are lots of guys named Herod that come in successive generations. Herod the Great got his nickname because he was the greatest of all the Herods. Okay, So Herod the Great. When Herod the Great died, or actually before Herod the Great died, he wrote a will. Now, it's not uncommon, but what was a bit uncommon is that Herod the Great revised his will multiple times, in part because of his paranoia. He always thought people were after him and his stuff, and in part because his kids, his sons, to whom he left his kingdom, kept getting assassinated. And so he'd have to change his will over and over again. Um, but he, he wanted to specify to whom his kingdom would go uh, when he died. And so right before he died, one last time, Herod the Great modified his will, basically dividing it up into four parts. And now, to me, this is really uh, fascinating. The biggest part of the kingdom of Herod the Great, Judea, he left for his eldest son, a guy named Archelaus, all right? Now, Archelaus, um, in, in the will, was supposed to have the title of king, okay? So that was the highest designation that you could have under the title of emperor, okay? Um, so that was what Archelaus was supposed to have. 
Herod the Great left the second part of his kingdom, which was smaller, uh, less significant, uh, an area called Galilee, you've heard of that, to another son, a, a guy named Herod Antipas. Okay, that's the Herod that shows up there in verse 1. Okay, his, his, it's Herod Antipas. Again, there's lots of Herods, Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas wasn't as great in his dad's mind as Archelaus. And so Herod the Great said, I want Herod Antipas's title to be Tetrarch. Okay, well, Tetrarch technically means uh, an owner of a fourth, but it also carried with it this idea of a petty prince. Okay, now you can imagine what, what happens then between Archelaus and Antipas. This really ticks Antipas off. Big brother Archelaus gets the title of king, and I just get the title of tetrarch. Okay, so when King Herod dies, a family feud erupts. Antipas decides, I'm going to challenge this will. And so he appeals all the way to the emperor of Rome and says, hey, I want you guys to to know, I believe an earlier version of dad's will should be honored in one in which I received more than Archelaus. The Roman Senate considered the case, and in all honesty, they kind of liked Antipas better because Archelaus was a a cruel and a, a, a disastrous ruler. But when it came down to it, they decided to honor Herod the Great's final will, and they granted the bigger kingdom to Archelaus. So here you have these two brothers who don't like each other very much, But the Senate decided, well, you know, in order to try to work it out with these two boys, we won't give Archelaus the title of king. We'll give him the title of ethnarch, okay, which was kind of in between a king and a tetrarch. Okay, so now this is a real slap in Archelaus' face. Dad wanted him to be king. Now he's something lesser. Antipas is kind of happy. He doesn't get everything he wants, but at least his big brother isn't king. And so you have this feud that's just kind of boiling there. Well, the Roman Senate over time was proven right in their assessment of Archelaus's incompetency. And later in Archelaus's rule, there was this big dispute over this eagle uh, that was erected over the gate of the Jewish temple. Uh, two teachers threw a fit about it. As a result, these teachers were murdered Um, And it led to this great rebellion uh, in Jerusalem. Archelaus, being the cruel man that he was, sends in the troops to to squash uh, the rebellion. And he ends up killing something like 3,000 people, among them many pilgrims that were visiting uh, Jerusalem to attend the feast. Well, the Judean and Samaritan people didn't like this very well. They appealed to Rome because of Archelaus' cruelty, uh, and it was all that Rome needed in order to have their justification uh, for deposing of him. And so they depose of Archelaus, and in his place, they appoint a governor, none other than Pontius Pilate, who 
who shows up now in verse 1. So that's why when you read verse 1, you read that Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea because he replaced Archelaus, much to the delight of Antipas, I would add. And King and Herod Antipas is still over here in Galilee. Okay, so right there in verse 1, what you should be hearing as Luke is writing is the political corruption and chaos at its finest in Rome. You, you have family betrayal that's going on. You have people getting kicked out of office. You have lawsuits. You have court hearings. You have political revenge. This is political soap opera at its best. Just to help bring it into perspective for you, if Luke were writing his gospel today, he might start off with something like this. In the first year of President Biden's rule, when Ron DeSantis was governor of Florida and Dr. Fauci was the chief medical advisor to the president, now a thousand years from now, those would just be names. But because you live here and now, you know that in those names is a web of political complexities, right? That's what's happening as Luke is writing in Luke chapter 3 and verse 1. These aren't just names. There is intense political corruption happening in the context of John the Baptist. We haven't even finished verse 1. And you have all of that going on. Then, then Luke throws in this. He says, Philip, which was, by the way, a half-brother to the other two guys we've already talked about, Archelaus and Antipas. Philip, he's the Tetarch of, uh, of Galilee, which was this northeastern region. Philip had a wife named Herodias. Now, if you're a student of scripture, that name should ring some bells because you know that Herodias eventually leaves Philip to go marry Herod Antipas, the other tetrarch mentioned there in verse 1. It was a divorce and remarriage that was utterly immoral, not to mention the fact that Herodias is actually Antipas' niece. This is not only immoral behavior, it's incest. This is moral corruption. This environment is nothing less than a cesspool of deceit and wickedness. It, it really should tell us the, the, the foul moral climate of the day. It's the marriage between Herodias and Antipas that eventually cost John the Baptist his life. Because John the Baptist goes to Herod Antipas and says, this marriage to Herodias is wrong. You shouldn't do this. And, and Her uh, Antipas hates him for it. And one night in a drunken stupor, uh, Antipas uh, makes a foolish promise, uh, which ends with John the Baptist's head on a platter. So think about what Luke is doing for us. He is describing for us the political corruption of the day. 
he's also introducing to us and highlighting the cultural corruption of the day. And then he introduces us to one more, the religious corruption of the day. Look at verse 2. He says, during the reign, or excuse me, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Well, if you know anything about the high priesthood, you know that the high priest was the highest ranking priest in the nation of Israel. He was the leader of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of Jerusalem. And he made the final decision of any debated Jewish law. The high priesthood was a single-man job, and it was a job that was an appointment for life. So why does Luke mention two names here and use a singular priesthood? He says it was during the high priesthood, singular, of two guys, Annas and Caiaphas. How does that work? Well, Annas was the high priest from A.D. 6 until 15. Um, But inside the Roman government, the Roman government had the power to uh, put into place and remove Jewish high priests. And the previous governor uh, to Pontius Pilate was a guy named Gratus, and he didn't like Annas very much. And so he removed Annas from the high priesthood and he put in Caiaphas in his place. Now, Caiaphas is a son-in-law to Annas. But make no mistake about it, even though Caiaphas was the high priest, he was the high priest in title only. The Jewish people still considered Annas to be their high priest. And Annas was the power broker that was behind the scenes. Nothing happened inside the religious ranks of Jerusalem, outside of the knowledge and control of Annas. Annas was large, and Annas was in charge. It was Annas who had set up the money-making enterprise inside the temple. It was Annas who allowed vendors to come into the court of Gentiles Uh, to sell sacrificial animals, to exchange money, and to otherwise peddle their goods. It was Annas and his cronies who made sure that virtually every animal that came into the temple failed inspection, and therefore people coming to the temple and wanting to honor God would have to buy one of Annas's pre-qualified sheep and lamb and turtle doves, which, by the way, was marked up to astronomical prices, a cut of which went to Annas. It was also Annas who insisted that the temple tax, which had to be paid every year, had to be paid using Jewish coins. Well, nobody had Jewish coins. Everybody used Roman coins those days. So guess what? You come to the temple and you exchange your Roman coins for Jewish coins for an incredible markup, a cut of which went to Annas. So widely known was the 
the corruption that Annas had introduced into the temple, uh, that the temple became known as the Bazaar of Annas, B-A-Z-A-A-R, the circus, the bazaar of Annas. He made huge money off of this. It's no wonder that when Jesus shows up on the scene, he calls the place a den of robbers, and he clears it out in a display of righteous anger. So what Luke has just done for us in verse 1, in the beginning of verse 2, has shown us the political corruption that's happening inside of Israel. He's shown us the cultural and moral corruption that is happening inside of the country. And he has shown for us the religious corruption inside the nation of Israel. He has set the stage for us. And this chorus of corruption seemingly drowns out all right thinking, all moral aptitude, all principled behavior. Something needs to change. Something needs to give. Somebody needs to be the voice of reason. Someone needs to be the voice of clarity. Somebody needs to be the voice of candor. Enter John the Baptist. Look at verse 2 again. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The word of God came. That's less like an Old Testament wording. It's to connect John the Baptist to what Jay read earlier of Elijah of old. God has been prophetically silent for 400 years. And now, in a spirit of Elijah, here comes this forerunner of our Lord, John the Baptist. He's the miracle son of uh, of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's been living out in the wilderness. He's been eating uh, wild honey and locusts. He's dressed in a coat of camel's hair. Again, all allusions back to Elijah. And God has sent him with a message to precede his son Jesus' arrival. And so here comes John the Baptist in the midst of all these things going on around him. And he's traveling around the region of the Jordan River, proclaiming the message. And you've got to catch this message because it only makes sense in the midst of all of the other things that you now know were happening around him because this message is revolutionary. This message is full of candor and conviction and promise and hope. And his message gets to the core of the human problem of that day and of ours too. He proclaims, look what he proclaims. He proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism, here's a water baptism, of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, water baptism was not new. Okay, This was not a new concept yet that was happening. It wasn't particularly new to that time, but it was new in the way that John the Baptist was using it. Water baptism to that point had been used by Jews to baptize, to baptize Gentiles when Gentiles proselytized. They, they came over to Judaism, the way of thinking of Gentiles. So here's what happened. When a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, the Jews would take that Gentile to the water and they would baptize him. It was, 
it was a symbolic gesture to say, we're going to clean off all the filth of your Gentilism. And now you're, you're a Jew. Okay, that's what the, the baptism meant uh, to Jews. It was merely external. It was very ceremonial. Uh, not really much fanfare. Um, so Jews, though, were never baptized. It was only for Gentiles. Jews were never, they didn't see the need. They were already children of promise. They didn't need to be baptized. And so when John comes along and John starts preaching a baptism of repentance, John says, no, 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 no. This baptism is a baptism of repentance for sin. It is not just for Gentiles. It is also for Jews because you all are sinners. You've all violated the commands of God. You've all fallen short of the glory of God. Well, that was an an insulting and offensive message to the Jews. They saw no need for their own baptism. That didn't hold John the Baptist back. He would just preach and he, he would preach and he would say, in order for you to be baptized, you need to display true repentance. True repentance for your sin. Repentance is more than just, I'm sorry. Repentance, John is saying, is a turning away from your sin, going the other way. So repentance, uh, baptism of repentance says, I'm coming and I want to be baptized to show that true repentance has happened. I've left my sin, I'm pursuing something else. That, by the way, is the exact same message for today. Exactly the same. Every one of us sitting in this room is a sinner. Every one of us sitting here is qualified under the category of sinner. We've inherited a sinful nature, and we are, by our own choice, sinners. We've committed sin. Some of us in this room have lied. Some of us in this room have committed fornication and adultery. Some of us have stolen things. Some of us have become sinfully angry or we've worried or we've gossiped or we've given in to greed or worldliness. None of us in this room can say that we have perfectly obeyed the law of God. And if you do claim that, you are a liar, hence you and I are a sinner. And the penalty for that sin is the wrath of God. You will die and you will suffer for eternity in a place called hell if you do not repent and turn away from your sin. If you want to be saved and you want to escape the wrath of God, then you must repent of your sin and turn toward Christ. That is the message of the gospel. It's a message of repentance. It's a call to repentance. What does that repentance look like? Well, in the New Testament, Paul gives us this beautiful contrast between a person who just says they're sorry and a person who has truly repented and turned away from their sin. Watch this, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a difference between Godly grief, true repentance, and worldly grief or worldly sorrow. People who have worldly sorrow cry. 
Everybody cries when they have sorrow. People with worldly sorrow cry, but why do they cry? They cry because they got caught. And now what's going through their mind is, oh no, now my life is going to be hard. Now my wife is going to leave me. Now my friends are going to find out. Now my career might end. That is worldly grief. Why? Because that all points to me. It's all about me. And you know where worldly grief leads? Paul says it leads to death. It leads to death. But godly repentance, godly grief, looks very different. 2 Corinthians 7.11 goes on to say, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Catch this. Listen. Godly grief produces tears as well. But godly grief says, It's not about the fact that my life is going to be hard. Godly grief produces tears because I've offended a holy God. That's godly grief. I've offended a holy God. And I want to clear myself. I'm angry at my sin. I I fear, I have a healthy fear of God's punishment. I want to be free from my sin. I am zealous to root that sin out of my life and I am willing to suffer whatever punishment is necessary to make restitution for what I've done. Do you hear the difference between the two? Worldly sorrow says, oh, woe is me, I got caught, my life's going to be hard. Godly sorrow says, I have offended God. I have to turn away from this. It's godly repentance that John the Baptist is preaching. John the Baptist is coming along and he's saying, you need to have a baptism of repentance from your sin because you have offended God. Listen, friends, if you want to have Christ, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to enjoy the splendors of heaven forever, you must repent of your sin. Have godly sorrow for your sin. Hmm. Well, this message offended the Jews, and it offends people today. And by the way, just so you know, this same message that John the Baptist preaches, Jesus goes on to preach the same exact message. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Here it is. Repent. And believe in the gospel. Jesus preached the exact same message. You need to repent. And you need to believe in the gospel. And Jesus comes along. And Jesus took the penalty for sin on the cross. And if you repent of your sin and believe on him, then your penalty has been paid. The wrath that was due to you was placed on Jesus Christ. And you are given his righteousness. That's the greatest news on the face of the earth. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's offensive to sinners. They don't want to hear that message. 
They don't want to hear that they're sinners. They don't want to hear that they've offended a holy God. They don't want to see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. And people today, and sadly, people in broader Christendom today, would rather have the nice Jesus, the loving Jesus, the social justice warrior Jesus. And here are some of the things that you will hear today in progressive Christianity and some of the untruths that they will peddle to you. They will say things like, Jesus came to earth to feed hungry people. Therefore, Christianity equals feeding hungry people. Yes, Jesus did come and he fed hungry people. And yes, we should feed hungry people. But that's not what got Jesus murdered. Progressive Christians will come to you and they will say things like this. Jesus came to earth to help the marginalized. Just look at the Samaritan woman. Therefore, Christianity equals helping the marginalized. Well, yes, Jesus did help the marginalized. And yes, we are called to help the marginalized. But hear me, helping the marginalized is not what got Jesus crucified. Progressive Christianity will tell you today, Jesus came to earth to heal people. Therefore, Christianity equals helping sick people. Our response? Yes, Jesus helped sick people. Yes, we are called to help sick people. But that is not what got Jesus flogged, beaten, spit upon, and tacked to a cross. What got Jesus killed? Because Jesus had the audacity, like John the Baptist, to say, you're a sinner, and you need a savior, and you need to repent to have forgiveness. That is what got nails in the hands of Jesus' arms and in his feet. It was the message of repentance. So when John the Baptist came along and he preached repentance, it got him killed. When Jesus comes along and he preaches repentance, it got him killed. What do you think is going to happen to you when you preach repentance? The world's not going to like you. The world's not going to stand up and cheer for you. The world is going to hate you just like it hated John the Baptist, just like it hated Jesus. And your voice of candor in the chorus of corruption around you will bring the scorn of the world. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. So here's my encouragement to you. Don't give up. Don't fall down. Your message 
the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, deemed by the world to be unloving and hateful, is in fact the most loving message that you can proclaim. There is nothing more loving than to tell the world that they're lost, but you know a Savior who can save them. That is the most loving thing you can do. The most unloving and the most hateful thing that you can do is to avoid that conversation and let that person continue their trek straight into hell. That would be hateful and unloving. John the Baptist comes along and he preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And Luke ties John the Baptist to Elijah through this quotation of Isaiah 40. And you can see it there in verses 4 down through verse 6. It's interesting that the other gospel writers include this same passage um, from Isaiah But it is only Luke who includes what we have as verse 6 in our Bible. The other gospel writers in the quotation in verse 5, Luke goes on and he writes verse 6. Why does he write verse 6? Well, look what it says again. It says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Again and again and again, Luke wants to drive home this point. Jesus is is for everyone. It doesn't matter if your last name is Yoder or Miller or Otto or Kaufman or Mast. or Ma- It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you are white or black or male or female or Jew or Gentile. It does not matter. Jesus is for you. And Jesus came to save people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. It is a universal message. So the question that I want to leave you with is this. Will you be the voice of candor in the chorus of corruption that is your context today? When the political world and the cultural world and maybe even the religious world around you looks bleak, will you be the one to raise your lone voice to say, here is the truth. You need to repent for the forgiveness of your sin. And I know a man named Jesus. Will you do that? May God give you the courage. Will you stand? Let's pray. Father God, we need your courage. It's not easy to look on the forefathers of our faith, and it's certainly not easy to look to our Lord and see that every predecessor was killed for this message that doesn't exactly exude enthusiasm to go out and share this message. So what does? Father, it's because we know that you save sinners. 
And while we may suffer for a time in this world, and while we may even lose our head in this world, we know that this message of the gospel will produce eternal life, life that's forever and ever and ever. So we give ourselves to that cause. Even though our world looks bleak at times, never has there been a better time to stand with the voice of truth, the voice of clarity, the voice of conviction and say, you need a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of your sin. And God, thank you that we have this completed picture of Jesus Christ and that we know he's coming back. We see the end. We see the beauty of the fulfillment of the gospel for the ages to come. Help us to be bold and courageous. Help us to give our lives for the cause of the gospel, whether that's here in Sarasota, whether that's in Florida, whether that's around the world. We're expendable, but your word will live forever and ever and ever, and our souls will live forever and ever and ever. So help us to speak up when it's hard. Help us to speak up when it's difficult when it's unpopular, and when we know it will bring the scorn of man. Because we know it's what the world needs today, just like it needed when Luke wrote chapter 3 of his gospel. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name.